Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about anxiety and stress and right out of the gate, I think we need to establish the difference between just run-of-the-mill stress that happens every day, trying to get to work on time, things like that, and anxiety. Right. Yeah, everybody experiences stress, and everybody even experiences anxiety mm-hmm. if you have the right kind of stressor facing you, like if you have a big job interview or, you know, whatever. Like um, a, a first date, Yeah, first perhaps. date, something scary or exciting. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's just normal yeah. stress and anxiety. Anxiety is normal behavior. Correct. Normal behavior. It's a normal response. Yes. National Institutes of Health approved. <laughs> yes, they gave anxiety two thumbs up. Yeah. Um, where it becomes a problem mm-hmm. when, when you have an anxiety disorder is when it just becomes this constant hum in the background. Yes. When you just find that you are always sort of, ha- when you always have that fight or flight feeling, like at any moment you're ready to punch someone and run. Yeah. Then, then you might, you know, have a disorder. Because when we think about that, that normalized anxiety, we can usually trace it back to stress because it's kind of like aggravated stress. And whereas with, with uh, anxiety that becomes more of a disorder, it's a lot more nebulous as to why, why it's happening. There's right. nothing really to be stressed about, but for some reason, even riding home on the train, <laughs> I'm freaking out. Right. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of people around. So you could have a social anxiety disorder if being around a lot of people freaks you out. Mm-hmm. And that social anxiety disorder is is one of the five subtypes of anxiety disorders. And it can really lead to to completely shrinking your world down because oh, yeah. people people with with honest to goodness social anxiety just can't stand to be out among a lot of people, they, they really fear that they are being watched, that all eyes are on them, and that um, everybody's judging them. Yeah, and you develop certain avoidant behaviors. Mm-hmm. So you want to avoid the types of settings or the potential scenarios that you know could trigger that anxiety. So like you said, Caroline, it kind of whittles down your your world. Right. And even even if someone with social anxiety manages to actually get out of the house and go to an event, a mm-hmm. birthday party, a bar, whatever, um, work, <laughs> um, the, the, the person with anxiety is still going to worry about it, really fret about it for before, during and after. And then especially after they're going to be thinking like, oh, my gosh, did I did I something stupid. Uh, they're all judging me and laughing at me. And they'll just replay scenarios in their head of, of clearly like I did something idiotic while I was there. Mm hmm. Um, so that's social phobia. That's one of the five. And then uh, we talked about just the generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and then there's OCD, mm-hmm. which, um, is often characterized by repetitive movements, such as having to touch a doorknob 55 times. Right. Yeah. You're, you're prone to counting things, touching things. It's, it's one thing. Okay. So like I will get into bed at night and my eyes will pop open and be like, Oh my God, did I lock the door? Mm-hmm. Or, oh my God, did I set my alarm? And those are, that's, that's normal anxiety because I have forgotten to lock the door and I have forgotten to set my alarm. So checking those things once or twice is, is normal. Yeah. If I were to get up out of bed 37 times to check the door, 
I might have obsessive compulsive disorder. And he might be kind of bleary eyed in the podcast <laughs> studio. <Caroline. laughs> yeah. Sorry, I was up all night checking the door lock. <laughs> uh, and then moving on from there, we have panic disorder. Right. Yeah, that's um feelings of terror that strike suddenly and repeatedly without warning. And a panic attack is different from an anxiety attack, much the same way that anxiety disorder is different from just regular anxiety. Because if you have an anxiety attack, that's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so worried about this job interview tomorrow mm-hmm. or I'm so worried about this date tonight, how it's going to go. And, and you know, your heart starts racing, your palms start sweating. You might feel a little short of breath. <sighs> but a panic attack is something that's maybe not related to a specific stressor. It's just you'll be sitting there like typing on the computer and all of a sudden like, <gasps> yeah, your chest will feel tight. You know, you might even think you're having a heart attack. You know, you'll just feel nervous. And, you know, that fight or flight thing kicks in. You know, I actually can explain the difference very clearly between an anxiety attack and a panic attack. I had an anxiety attack last night when my roommate and her boyfriend were watching a, a horror movie about, oh, what was it? Were they Piranhas watching- really loudly and I couldn't go to sleep. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say they were watching, uh, what is it, Just Play Me Misty. <laughs> Just Clint Play Misty movie. for me. I know I did set my DVR to record that because I don't want to, I want to be able to practice what I preach. <laughs> I want to watch those movies. Um, and then we also have rounding out the five post-traumatic stress disorder, which we've heard about so much these past few years mm-hmm. in the news related to soldiers coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan. Because a lot of time PTSD is linked to some kind of traumatic, stressful situation, um, recurrent among war vets, like we mentioned, and then also, uh, victims of sexual assault, sexual violence, um, and other traumatic situations. Yeah, that whole fight or flight reaction just kind of goes haywire and mm-hmm. you you basically can't shut it off. You just always feel with PTSD, um people typically feel constantly stressed and frightened. And I got to say uh talking about all of these symptoms <laughs> has put me a little on edge. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and well, I- is it is it the fact that these symptoms of general anxiety disorder include Fatigue, uh-huh. headaches, yeah. muscle aches, oh, God. trembling and irritability, having to go to the bathroom frequently, feeling out of breath and having hot flashes. So it could just be that like <laughs> a hangover. You're like, oh, my God, I have an anxiety disorder. <laughs> I am about to cry. <laughs> Aww, I'll hug you. <laughs> <laughs> Laugh, cry. Laugh, cry. Uh, well, but here's the thing though, uh, cause I'm sure that I'm not the only one who, who was a little on edge thinking about all of these, these symptoms mm-hmm. of anxiety. Uh, so here is sort of, I don't want to call it good news, but something to put it in perspective for anyone listening right now. Cause I know there's someone and a lot of you probably listening right now who have experienced some of these anxiety symptoms. And here you go. You are not alone. You are not alone. Okay, you're right. No, you're not. You're not. Uh, a lot of people are saying that anxiety disorders are on the rise, actually. Yeah. Just uh, for baseline statistics, 40 million Americans affected by anxiety disorders, one of those five that we're talking about. And according to Psychology Today, in any given year, about 17% of us will have an anxiety disorder. And across our lives, about 28% of us will be affected by one of those disorders or multiple disorders. Right. Yeah. And so if you're standing at a party or something or at some event and you're like, oh, my gosh, everyone's looking at me. And then you make yourself feel even more worked up because you're like, oh, my God, I'm getting anxious. I sound ridiculous. And so you start panicking even more. Fifteen million Americans have social anxiety disorder. Yeah. Of of some level. 
So, you know, people are probably more worried about themselves than they are about you and what you're doing and wearing and saying. So that's that's a a comforting thing. Yeah. It's a good way to keep that, that spiraling, um, (laughs) in, in perspective. But, But like you also said though, Caroline, it is becoming an increasing problem. Uh, for instance, the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. Hmm. These are kids we're talking about. And on top of that, a recent study of uh, 63,000 college students found that five times as many young adults are dealing with high levels of anxiety as in the late 1930s. Swoon. Yeah, that just makes me yearn for a fainting couch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the late 1930s, that was not a cakewalk of a time. No. And we are stressing out. We are stressing out. Well, just because um, it seems like our brains are maybe not wired for the kind of world we live in The The socially, incredibly socially wired and yet kind of interpersonally disconnected world. That's what uh, some psychologists attribute this to. Right, yeah. Uh, Jason Eric Schiffman wrote in the Huffington Post that, you know, if some of us are genetically determined, predetermined to suffer from anxiety and it's just wired in there, well, then surely some of our ancestors on the African savannah must have been kind of anxious. Like, oh, my God, look at that lion. You know, I mean, they are probably pretty anxious, too, at, at times. Yeah. But he says that now we're in an environment, uh, you know, where we're we're living alone. We're separated from people. We're doing all of our communication on Facebook. Right. You know, so we're not having those same sort of uh, emotional connections maybe with other people. And we're probably busier than ever because everything is in a 24 hour cycle because the news is constant. Information is constant. We can be online and quote unquote connected constantly. Yeah. If I have my phone on, I know every time someone writes on my Facebook wall. Yeah. It's just debilitating. It's so much, um, information. Um, and there's also, uh, this idea of a cultural shift away from intrinsic values of who you are as a person to more extrinsic values of all the things that you list as your hobbies and interests and where you've been on your Facebook wall. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everybody's worried about, yeah, I say everybody, I'm so making a general blanket statement here, but you know, people are, are worried about uh, having money, having Absolutely. a nice car, having nice clothes, having the right friends and stuff. And they're not maybe so much looking inward anymore. Yeah. And even though that might sound kind of cliche, uh, might have, it might pay off in the end because Long-term stress and anxiety in particular, these anxiety disorders, if left untreated, can have some bad health effects for men and women alike. Yeah. um, Panic disorders, people with panic disorders are more likely to have mitral valve prolapse, hypertension, peptic ulcer, diabetes, angina, or thyroid disease. So if that doesn't make you anxious right there, I don't really know what will. But yeah, men in, uh, specifically are at higher risk for cardiac disorders and hypertension, as well as respiratory illnesses and back pain. And women are more likely to have a history of cardiac problems, arthritis, um, and then dermatological and respiratory disorders. Now, that just hints at some gender differences with anxiety disorders, because mm-hmm. like you said, there are some symptomatic differences And there's a big question in the psychiatric psychological community of whether or not women are naturally more prone to be anxious and develop anxiety disorders because adult women are twice as likely to be diagnosed with some kind of anxiety disorder as men are. What is going on? Yeah, there's a lot of theories. There's, there's theories that, uh, talk about the combination of, um, 
stress hormones and lady hormones. You know, so when you're premenstrual, that there's you're more likely to be anxious and have um, shortness of breath, which mm-hmm. is interesting. According to the suffocation false alarm theory, there is a suffocation alarm system in our bodies that becomes hypersensitive when we're premenstrual. So apparently we're all walking around hyperventilating when we're about to have our periods. So we're just more anxious. So that's a sign to watch out for yeah, that your period's coming. Hyperventilating. I can't catch my breath. Let's buy some tampons. <laughs> um, in addition to these, these hormonal differences, some studies have also indicated that there might be some gender differences in how our brains deal with stress that might be responsible for this anxiety gender gap that we're talking about. For instance, uh, there was some research done at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And this was on rats, but we get a lot of information about human behavior from rats. Mm-hmm. And I think this was some kind of stress swim test. Yeah. They made rats swim. Poor, poor rats. Poor swimming rats. <laughs> I know. That does sound stressful. And they, uh, <laughs> they found that the female rat neurons were more receptive to something called corticotropin releasing factor, or CRF, which is a hormone that organizes the stress response in mammals. So basically, when that fight-or-flight response kick in, kicks in, the CRF gets into gear to basically keep, keep you safe. Right. And, yeah, the female rats were just less able to adapt to the high levels than the male rats were. Yeah, the male rat brain cells were better at the process of internalization, which, like you said, Caroline, is this uh, adaptation, basically, that, that allows them to kind of chill out a little bit more when a stressful situation comes up, like having to swim if you're a rat. <laughs> if you're a rat, yeah. That, I wonder how big the, the bucket was that they put them in. I hope it was not so big. <laughs> not so that big. just seems like, oh, so, so like scary for a rat. Kitty pool. Right. Um, so they're thinking that maybe that CRF difference has something to do with it. Another study from Florida State University conducted in 2010 found that in male rat brains, the higher levels of testosterone seem to provide some kind of buffer against anxiety, maybe yeah. linked to that response to the CRF. It's interesting the role that uh, our, our hormones seem to play in all of this because, oh, yeah. you know, going back to the, the suffocation, you know, alarm that your body has, there's something to do with estrogen levels falling during ovulation um, that causes this hyperventilation feeling um, because you have higher carbon dioxide levels in your respiration. So, yeah, there's something to do with all of these hormones, testosterone and estrogen uh, circulating that seems to affect anxiety. So just to add another set of chemicals to this anxiety cocktail that we're mixing up here, Robert Sapolsky, who's a professor of neurobiology at Stanford University, thinks that this anxiety gender gap may also be attributable to oxytocin released in the female brain to calm down the epinephrine and cortisol activity that spikes when we're really stressed out. Right. Basically what happens is that cortisol and epinephrine raise your blood pressure and circulate the blood sugar level when you're stressed. And then the brain releases this oxytocin, which counters the production of those other two chemicals, which promotes a nurturing and relaxed feeling. It's also released in the brain during an orgasm. Indeed it is. So so those uh, bonobo monkeys we talked about not too long ago. <laughs> yeah. They've got it all. Lots yeah, of oxytocin. Oxytocin. Actually, and men secrete le- less oxytocin when they're stressed. 
which I thought was interesting because, you know, these other things that we mentioned about the rat studies show that male rats seem to be able to handle these stress hormones better. But maybe it's because of that testosterone buffering effect. Could be. Perhaps it's linked somehow. Perhaps. So another effect of this oxytocin release for women is that we tend to tend and befriend when we're stressed, whereas Mm -hmm. men are more likely to have the fight or flight response. When we are stressed, we look to bond Mm -hmm. and take care of someone. Maybe, you know, when we were cave women running around and there was like a big brontosaurus coming to, to chase us. Because, you know, that happened. Um, You know, we were trying to take care of our children and our cave children and whatnot. While the men were going out, like, kill the, kill the Baronosaurus. Anyway, anyway. Um, Yeah, so this actually, this whole female self-sacrifice thing um, that we're more prone to do actually can lead to increased levels of stress for women. Because Because we're like, no, don't worry about me. I'm going to take care of you. Oh, so kind of uh, transposing our stress onto sort yeah. of onto someone. It's like a big cycle. Else, I'm stressed, so I'm going to hug you, but hugging you stresses me. Attending and befriending. Yeah. That's an interesting theory. And I wonder if that might be why, um, one of the reasons why women are diagnosed with anxiety more often, because perhaps it is not so much that women are naturally worry warts. Because mm-hmm. obviously stress and anxiety affect men too. But maybe it's just because, uh, related to that whole tend and befriend theory that we're simply more likely to express it and to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, by talking about it to say, I don't know, a psychiatrist be diagnosed with some of some kind of anxiety disorder. Right. And women are definitely more likely to go seek help for anxiety and depression than men are. Yeah. I think that men comprise, I think, 37% of, uh, psychiatry patients. Right. So there's a gap right there. Yeah, women are more willing to, generally more willing to talk about their problems. And Taylor Clark over at Slate recently um, brought up the question of this nature versus nurture when it mm-hmm. comes to that that huge anxiety gender gap. Right. He said that the way we treat our children and react to their outbursts has a lot to do with how children end up developing anxiety disorders and who is more likely to be anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that boys actually show, show more emotional neediness in the first few months of life. And up until age 11, boys and girls are equally likely to develop an anxiety disorder. But then, but then at age 15 during puberty and a lot of stuff happens, a lot of the, the, the gender role switcheroo happens. Yeah. During adolescence because of hormones, girls become six times more likely six times to be diagnosed with some kind of anxiety disorder. And Clark wonders whether or not it has to do with something that psychologists refer to as the skinned knee effect, which is the idea that, okay, so uh, me and my brother playing outside, we're kids, I skin my knee, he skins his knee, I run in and, you know, mom's going to take me up into her lap, be like, oh, Kristen, let me take care of it. What kind of Band-Aid do you want? And with my brother, she'd be like, Matthew, you wash up your knee. Dry those tears. We don't take care of boys in this house. And that was a fictional mother. My mother would not. First of all, we only had one kind of band-aid and it was a plain band-aid and that's all he got. But secondly, she was, she was kind and didn't talk like a witch. Right. And so yeah, um, that kind of relates to how, um, 
maybe women grow up thinking like, oh, it's okay to be shy and, and meek and anxious and neurotic. Because well, well, I'll be coddled. Well, no, not necessarily giving us some past to be, <laughs> to be weaklings, Caroline. Ex- ex- expressing anxiety is not a sign of weakness, but simply the idea that, that it's devil's advocate. That, <laughs> that it is okay for us to, to emote. Right. Whereas for guys, it's not, you, you have know, to suck it up. stiff upper lip. Yeah. yeah. So they're not, they're not as accustomed to asking for help and, you know, please put a Band-Aid on my knee. And chances are we could probably learn a lot from each other by meeting in the middle. Perhaps women could use a little bit more of that stiff upper lip, and perhaps men could use a little more of our tending and befriending. Right. It's interesting, though, that women, not only is there this idea of women as more anxious and more prone to anxiety disorders, but we think we're more anxious and emotional, too. Yeah. There was this 1998 study that show that even when men and women experience the same level of emotion, women are consistently seen as more emotional and we see ourselves as more emotional, too. So, you know. And uh, and Taylor Clark, the person writing at Slate, concludes that it is definitely nurture over nature, writing that, quote, the idea that women are naturally twice as anxious as men is nothing more than a pernicious illusion. Ooh. And he also cites uh, a study finding that if... Women go to a doctor complaining of symptoms of chronic stress and anxiety, such as chest pain. Doctors might write it off and just say, you know what? You're just probably stressed out. Just go take a nap or something. Whereas <laughs> if a, a man, a man patient, if a male patient comes in complaining of the same symptoms, typically they'll get a full physical. So mm-hmm. it seems like even among the medical community, men's anxiety is taken a little more seriously because it's assumed to be less common. Right. Yeah. I actually, the last time I went in for a physical, I just happened to tell my doctor and I was like, yeah, you know, I haven't really been sleeping well lately and I've just been kind of stressed out and whatever. And she, first thing she says, she's like, well, I think I'll prescribe you some Ambien, but have you ever thought about anxiety drugs? And I was like, "Mm, no, but tell me more. (laughs) Is there a menu? So, yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely doctors who are, um, uh, very willing to just prescribe um, anxiety medicine and maybe not look further. And I mean, that's mm-hmm. fine. If I, if I had felt the need to, you know, really look, look deeper into my anxiety, then maybe I would have. <laughs> well, speaking though of going to the doctor, uh, let's talk about how to, to treat stress and anxiety, what people can do. Mm-hmm. Because let's start out with what not to do. And that is avoid it. Avoiding, well, yes, don't avoid it. And also don't self-medicate with things like cocaine, alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine, because that will only, at the end of the day, amplify your anxiety levels. Right. There's one study that shows that um, addicts who avoided their anxiety and did not deal with their stress were much more likely to have cravings. So people who were able to get their feelings out and talk about them and, and deal with their stress had fewer cravings. Mm-hmm. Whereas people who just bottled it up and ignored it were more likely to go back to whatever it was that they had a problem with. Right. The key to recovery was uh, practicing adaptive coping skills, which makes sense because a lot of times the intense stress and anxiety that we'll confront is directly related to some kind of change coming down the line. Mm-hmm. And, and it can be very hard to adjust and to deal with that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so and on a daily basis, things that you can do to keep your stress levels at bay, 
I mean, it's stuff we've all heard before. Eating a well-balanced, healthy diet, getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise. Um, and that exercise thing, I think, is incredibly important. I know when I have good weeks where I exercise multiple times, I feel like a superstar. Yeah, well, it releases all those endorphins. And mm-hmm. it's sort of uh, one person, one uh, thing that I read about uh, how to fix your anxiety or, or alleviate it, um, just called exercise meditation motion. Because you sort of lose yourself in the repetitive nature yeah. of whatever you do, whether it's running or racquetball or whatever. And also spend time tending and befriending. Tend to yourself, mm-hmm. befriend others. Right. Develop those important emotional connections so that you don't feel like you're isolated. Mm-hmm. But there's also uh, therapy. Yes. You know, speaking of those connections, you know, you can you can uh, go to a therapist and talk about your problems. And then there's also, of course, medication. So there are antidepressants available, which alter brain chemistry right away, but they take like four to six weeks to really kick in and, and start to alleviate symptoms. There's anti-anxiety drugs, which are generally prescribed for short periods like Xanax. Um, and you may need eventually to get higher doses. There's beta blockers, but there's also research on a heart disease drug, which actually interferes with stress hormones like epinephrine, like we talked about earlier. And this drug would actually um, have more to do with, quote unquote, curing mm-hmm. rather than just alleviating symptoms. So researchers are really trying to get at the root of anxiety instead of just kind of make you feel better on the surface. Yeah. That would be fantastic. Indeed. <laughs> you find a cure for anxiety. But I think the, the overall cure for stress and anxiety is, uh, really just not living, <laughs> not <laughs> encountering anything at all. Because again, it's nothing to freak out about if you encounter anxiety every now and then because it is a normal behavior. Right. But the question is, A, why, what, you know, what happens when it doesn't go away? And B, why does that seem to happen? more among women. Right. You, I mean, I try to calm myself down. Like I get migraines and a lot of the time they're related to the weather. So I can always tell you when it's going to rain. Oh, it's weird. But anyway, um, a lot of them are stress related too. And so what happens is if I become anxious about something or very stressed out and I start to get a headache, then I get even more anxious Mm -hmm. because this headache's coming on and I, you know, anticipating it. If you've ever had a migraine, I mean, they're terrible. They're Awful. awful. And so, yeah, I become more anxious, like, oh, my God, here it comes, here it comes. And then it gets worse and it's a cycle. And then I go home and sit in the dark. The spiral. Spiral. So, yeah, I try to, you know, when I feel something like that coming on, I try to, before I take an Excedrin or some other stronger prescription migraine medicine, I try to take some deep breaths, maybe Mm -hmm. go for a walk, calm myself down. Yeah. Stop the, stop the spiral. Indeed. Well, I think, I think that about covers it for anxiety. Um, and let us know your thoughts about anxiety. Uh, guys out there too, really curious about, um, this whole tending and befriending notion and whether or not you do tend to keep it a little more bottled up compared to perhaps women in your life who you've observed. Momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And we'll start out with an email from Richard. And this is in response to our HPV vaccine podcast. And I don't normally do this, but I'm going to respond directly to this email in this segment, maybe because I just didn't feel like typing. Uh, He said, I just finished listening to the HPV vaccine podcast. Can you give us your thoughts on the risk reward analysis in the link below, which is a CBS news story from 2009 about HPV vaccine? And he points out the cervical cancer death rate versus the deaths resulting from the HPV vaccine. Uh, And he's saying that more people have per 100,000 have died from 
HPV vaccine versus cervical cancer. And he asked for a risk-reward analysis of those statistics. And I'd like to point out that the death rate from, quote-unquote from, the HPV vaccine is misleading because that was in 2009. Uh, this is from the CDC. As of September 15th, 2010, they looked into all of the death reports, those 34 confirmed reports that were related to the HPV vaccine, meaning that at some point the people who had died had gotten the vaccine. And the CDC reports that there was no unusual pattern or clustering to the deaths that would suggest that they were caused by the vaccine. And some reports indicated a cause of death unrelated to vaccination. So one prime example of correlation causation, just because there have been people who have gotten the vaccine have died, does not mean that Gardasil is killing people. And even though the cervical cancer death rate is pretty low, we have to underscore the fact that HPV does not only lead to possibly cervical cancer, but also those head and throat cancers, which are on the rise, anal cancers, vaginal cancers, possibly lung cancers. And not to mention that 90% of genital warts cases trace back to HPV strains, which are also targeted by the vaccine. So when we talk about whether or not people uh, should look into the vaccination, you got to look beyond just cervical cancer. So... Just wanted to clear that up. So again, our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Leave a comment there. Say hello. Follow us on Twitter as well at momstuffpodcast. And check out our blog during the week. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You from howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?